Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. She was built for luxury, stability, and speed. The Gilded Age might have come crashing down by the 1910s, but that didn't mean decadence was off the menu. It was still very much encouraged for those who could afford it, of course. In the early 20th century, many shipping companies were competing for customers, especially among the leisure class. The White Star Line was duking it out with the Cunard to see which of their companies could create the most luxurious ships, and largely they spared no expense. White Star Line's new Olympic-class liners were a thing of beauty and decorated to match the most opulent hotels in New York and London, so the upper classes wouldn't feel out of place. It was now faster than ever to cover the distance between England and the United States, particularly New York, so the well-to-do were making the trip more often. Families, businessmen, and young men heading off on a tour of Europe before settling down all wanted for nothing on these ships. They were built to cater to the likes of the Vanderbilts, Astors, and Rockefellers. From the bedrooms to the entertainment on the menus, they would only get the best. Upper-class passengers stepping onto these ships could be greeted by a glorious grand staircase beneath a chandelier, or, in one case, an enormous dome that was lit to give the illusion of natural light at all hours. They could promenade, although the outdoor temperatures weren't often hospitable for long walks, Enjoy a swimming pool, Turkish baths, squash courts, and a state-of-the-art gym. Crews were meant to stay away from passengers unless they were working directly with them. They would have enjoyed similar accommodations as steerage and were expected to work every day of the week, so they wouldn't have spent much time in their rooms. Instead, they were at their posts all the time. But surprisingly, that's not where Charles Jockin was, late in the evening on April 14th, when he got the news. Charles was born in England in 1878 and joined the Royal Navy at the age of 11, following family tradition. By 1912, he was an experienced sailor and had found a place for himself in ship's kitchens as a baker. On this particular voyage, he was in charge of a staff of 13, which included 10 bakers, two confectioners, and a Vienna baker. He had a wife, Louise, and two kids, a daughter, Agnes, aged four, and Roland, aged two. Charles was due to earn a monthly wage of about 12 pounds that he could use to support his family. At almost a thousand pounds, this was one of his highest salaries on board, not surprisingly given his experience and responsibilities. Which was probably why when the Titanic hit that iceberg that terrible April night in 1912, Charles Jockin jumped into action. Charles was in his bunk sleeping, but was woken by the collision and ran into the hallway to see what had happened. He was immediately confronted with chaos. While the crew tried their best to help people who were panicking and terrified, Charles sprang into action and began to take control where he could. He ordered his bakers to start transporting 50 loaves of bread that they already had to the top decks where they were launching the lifeboats. Charles wanted to be sure the survivors would have enough food to last until they were rescued. As they worked, icy water was streaming into the ship and she was sinking rapidly. Many of the men in first class helped their families board the lifeboats and then returned to their cabins to dress for the occasion. Benjamin Guggenheim reportedly said, We've dressed up in our best and are prepared to go down like gentlemen. Having given up his seat on the lifeboat, 
Charles Jockin returned to his cabin for a different purpose. He got drunk, spectacularly drunk. He worked his way back to the upper decks after that and began tossing deck chairs overboard, hoping to give the survivors something to float on. Charles donned a life belt and made his way down to the pantry for a quick glass of water before he felt a terrific crash. The Titanic had broken in two from the pressure. Stumbling to the stern of the ship, he held onto the railing and waited. At 2.20 in the morning, the remaining half of the ship went vertical and disappeared into the Atlantic. Charles was probably one of the last people still on board. As he bobbed into the frigid waters, the shock had caused many people to seize up and drown as soon as they entered. However, Charles was a strong swimmer and began to tread water. He kept going for two and a half hours in the darkness. When the sun began to rise, he finally found a lifeboat and was pulled aboard. Shortly afterwards, the RMS Carpathia arrived and rescued the survivors, including an increasingly sober Charles. Thanks to the incredible amount of whiskey he imbibed and his implacable calm, Charles Jockin survived the sinking of the Titanic and lived to serve in the Great War and died in 1956 at the age of 78. We've all seen the part of the cop show where the suspect is locked in a small room with the detectives, snickering, thinking he's going to get away with his crime. And then, before he knows it, he's in handcuffs after having spilled all of the sordid details to them. Television shows and movies don't show how excruciating the confession process can be, both for the detectives and the suspects. It can require hours of questioning, with tempers and temperatures rising for everyone involved. But one woman had an idea to not only make it easier to get a confession out of someone, but to make it stick. No bones about it. Her name was Helene Adelaide Shelby, and on August 16th of 1927, she filed a patent for an apparatus for obtaining criminal confessions and photographically recording them. This was a tall order in the days before closed-circuit cameras and listening devices were installed in police interrogation rooms everywhere. But it turned out to be the perfect time to revolutionize the justice system. Big trials like the Scopes Monkey Trial, which debated the teaching of human evolution in Tennessee public schools, as well as the Sacco-Vanzetti murder trial, had turned the courtroom into a spectacle. And those trials were often disrupted by the suspects themselves, who would recant their confessions later, claiming that they were taken under duress or intimidation. But Shelby's new invention would prevent that. How? By altering their state of mind with fear. In order for the effect to work, the suspect would be locked in a small, dimly lit room by themselves. Or so they thought. Meanwhile, the detective or examiner would sit in an adjacent room out of view of the person being questioned. Then they would ask their questions through a megaphone in the wall. But this alone wouldn't be enough to elicit a confession. For that, Shelby proposed the use of a special tool. The examiner would press a button on a switchboard, and in the suspect's dark little closet chamber, a curtain would rise, revealing a skeleton. This skeleton would be lit by electric lights from underneath and above, while being draped in delicate, translucent fabric. It was meant to give it a ghostly appearance, thus terrifying the person in the room enough to confess their crimes. But what really sold the performance were the skeleton's eyes, which were made of red light bulbs. They would glow from behind the veil, piercing the soul of the suspect across from them as the examiner continued to ask them questions through the speaker embedded in the skeleton's mouth. And to top it all off, a film camera would be installed in its skull, 
to capture the picture and audio of the confession, preventing the suspect from recanting in the future. Shelby believed that if the confession was caught on film, it would be easy to go back and look at the suspect's facial expressions and body language to confirm whether or not they were telling the truth. It was a revolutionary idea at the time, if not a bit absurd. But then again, the CIA tried the same thing in the 1960s. Instead of a skeleton, they attempted to trick the Cubans into overthrowing Fidel Castro by telling them the second coming of Jesus Christ was imminent and that Christ hated the dictator. Fear is, and has always been, a powerful motivator. But unfortunately, it isn't the best choice when dealing with matters of the law. Her ghastly creation was not adopted by the police, and it probably wouldn't have lasted long anyway. Over 30 years later, coerced confessions were deemed inadmissible as evidence by the United States Supreme Court. Helene Shelby did not invent anything else during her lifetime. She dabbled in real estate, got married, and even played the ponies to some success. But she'll forever be remembered as the woman who believed that she could trick the average criminal into confessing their deepest, darkest secrets, all with the help of some elaborate Halloween decorations. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious.